0: While you're sitting down, if, if you have your Bibles, please open with me to the book of Mark, chapter 1. Book of Mark, chapter 1. As you're turning there, we, as you know, have been in the book of First Peter, and our typical mode of operation, or the way we work f- through preaching, is to preach through Books of the Bible, verse by verse, which will really not be a ton of a difference between that and this for these next few weeks, but just at a at a higher level uh, meaning. we're in First Peter we've been doing just a handful of verses a week and working through those each week. This week will be, uh, or for the next six weeks, we're going to be in the Book of Mark and we're going to kind of fly over the entire Book of Mark. Uh, pretty quickly, right? Six weeks-ish. I want to start with this question. Uh, I, let me back up. I, I should say this too. And then after the second week after Easter, uh, we'll come back and continue working through First Peter, uh, right where we left off. So for now, let me start with this question. What is the gospel? What, what is the gospel? Right? The gospel is something we talk about as a church all the time. Something we talk about from the pulpit, something we talk about in our house groups, is something we talk about in DNA. We, we use phrases like this, we need to be gospeling our hearts, uh, or we need to believe the gospel. We, we talk about as a church that the gospel is not something that was just important for the day we were saved, but is something that is important for those who are walking by faith today and will be important for us tomorrow. It's not a one-and-done thing. It's not something we just leave in the past and move on from. So what is the gospel? We, we talk about aspects of the gospel in every sermon. Uh, one time, as a matter of fact, when we were going through the book of Ephesians, someone brought a concern and said, You're not preaching the gospel in each sermon, uh, which is just crazy. The gospel, if the Bible's preached well, should be done in every sermon. That Every passage of Scripture, to some measure, relates us to the gospel, leads us to the gospel, shows us what the gospel is. We talk about aspects of the gospel every Sunday, whether that's talking about atonement or or redemption, or substitution. We talk about the Gospel, but really what is the Gospel? If it's something that we don't move on from, and it's something that is important every day, every moment of our lives, it's important that we take time frequently to come back and refresh our memories, and clarify, and even deepen our understanding of what the Gospel is. The other half of this coin or the other side of this coin that we want to think about as well, not just not just does the god what is the gospel and how does it relate to me, but when it comes to sharing the gospel, when it comes to proclaiming the gospel to people who have never believed the gospel, how do we do that? And I want to think about that for just a few moments, and both of these thoughts are kind of gonna kind of permeate our conversation or our, uh, our sermon today, and this series. But when it comes to sharing the gospel, how do we do that? I mean, here's the question. Do we recite and present the gospel as some set of propositions? Simply a set of facts? Like, do we present it as some ideology or philosophy or, or this, this is really popular in our day. Do we share the gospel as simply a personal experience? You know, something that's personal, it's for my experience, and here you can take it or leave it. <clears throat> or growing up, in, uh, in many of the churches I grew up in, the gospel was kind of simplified down to memorizing the Romans road. Or handing out a gospel track. Right? Is that the gospel? Can the gospel, let me ask you this question. Can the gospel be reduced to simply a set of propositions? Can the gospel be presented thoroughly, keyword thoroughly, in a simple booklet containing a set of facts? Now I'm not saying that that and and this hang with me. I'm being I'm being a bit provocative hang with me, I'm not saying that the gospel doesn't contain a set of propositions. It most certainly does. I'm not saying that the gospel doesn't necessitate the communication of absolute truths that we find in the scriptures. It absolutely does. The question is, is is that the totality of the good news of Jesus Christ? Is that the totality of the gospel when it comes to even ourselves and gospeling our hearts as we talk about? Or when it comes to proclaiming the Gospel, is that the totality of the Gospel? If we're going to be Christ followers in this culture, thinking about proclaiming the Gospel, we must know the Gospel well enough to be firmly planted, and subsequently well enough to thoroughly proclaim it. And we all have room to grow in our understanding of the richness and the depth of the Gospel. And I think we struggle here. I, th- I think every single one of us struggles in our understanding of the depth and the richness of the Gospel. And I think that speaks to two observations. We've been talking about in 1 Peter, the pursuit of holiness. And how we struggle in the pursuit of holiness. And that's part of the reason is because our understanding and, and, and believing the richness of the Gospel is, is, is weak. But it also speaks to the observation that we struggle to proclaim the gospel, to lost people who desperately need to hear it. Now again, I I, I know I I might even sound like a heretic for a moment here, you know, I'm bashing on the Roman's road, okay, I I, I get it. But we have to move past the Roman's road. Now hang on with me for a sec, because now you really think I'm a heretic not in an, in an abandonment way, not in a we leave the Romans road behind, but as in a sense of building upon it. Building upon it. Not building upon it from our experience and from what we think about life and all this stuff, but building upon it because the Scriptures portray, lead us to understand the Gospel in an even more rich way than simply a few verses to memorize and recite in a set of propositions that we might proclaim. The Gospel is so much more than that. And if we're going to move on and if we're going to build upon the Gospel as we see it in something like the Romans Road or a Gospel track, we need to understand who is the Gospel? Who? is the Gospel. To understand the Gospel, we must look at the person who is the Gospel Himself. He sits at the core of the Gospel. He is the Gospel Himself. The One whom, uh, Gospel meaning good news, the One whom the good news is about. If we're going to proclaim it, if we're going to proclaim it to ourselves, proclaim it to those who need to hear the Gospel, we need to know the person, Jesus, who is the Gospel itself. To do that, that's why we're going to the book of Mark. We want to spend a few weeks leading Up to Easter, understanding that the gospel or growing in our understanding that the gospel is so much more than just a set of statements that you must mentally agree with. That's the problem with many of us is that we think we're redeemed or saved because we agreed to a set of facts. When the gospel is more than just a set of facts. It certainly includes those facts, but it's more than a set of facts. It's a person. It's a person to be enjoyed. It's a person to believe. It's a person to trust. It's a person to follow. It's a person to submit to. It's a person to treasure and cherish and look forward to. The gospel is more than just a set of propositions. We're going to journey through the Gospel of Mark for a brief six weeks, and I pray that it'll be a blessing, particularly during the season of the resurrection. As we look forward to the celebrating the resurrection of Christ, I, I pray that it would be a blessing to you. Again, it's more than just a set of propositions. It includes those. But The Gospel is about a person whose name is Jesus and what He has done, and what He has done for us, and what He demands of us, and how He glorifies the Father in it. With all that said, I am going to hit just a couple passages here in Mark 1 and Mark 2. I want to read for you the first passage. We'll be in very briefly. Chapter 1, verse 21 through 27. Jesus heals a man of an unclean spirit, or with an unclean spirit. He says this. Mark says this. And they went into Capernaum, And immediately on the Sabbath, He, Jesus that is, entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at His teaching, for He taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And He cried out, What have you done with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed. So that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Before we go any further, let me pray for us. Father... As we study your word this morning, as we think about specifically uh, some dedicated time to the gospel, may we, may we see how rich, may we see how glorious the gospel really is. Father, for your glory and our good, it's in Jesus' name, amen. The first thing I want you to see is that Jesus' words have authority. Jesus' words have authority. Indeed, I think you would find from the the rest of the Scriptures that Jesus' words have ultimate authority. I don't think that's necessarily all the picture here in Mark 1. I think you'd have to look elsewhere to affirm that. But at least in this passage, you see that Jesus' words have authority. I see that Jesus. First of all, notice where he goes. This is towards the beginning of his ministry. We're in Mark one. I mean, you got to understand Mark two, or Mark the book or Mark the gospel. If you go back to chapter one, verse one, we don't have time right now. But you look back there; he's talking about the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark sets out to prove, to to describe, to give reason for believing that Jesus. Is not just a prophet, he's not just a good man, he's not just a teacher, he's, he's the Son of God. And so Mark's recounting through the gospel is going to be giving us evidences to prove that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is deity, that he's divine, that he has the authority of God. And so the first picture, or this, one of these first stories that we get to here in Mark chapter 1. Mark is showing us that Jesus' words have authority. And so he points out just where does Jesus go here at the very beginning? He goes to the place of authority when it comes to God's kingdom, at least among God's people. He goes to the place of authority, the religious community headquarters, if you will. The place where people would go to learn about God, to hear about God, to hear authoritative teaching about God. And Jesus goes to the same place and he enters into the synagogue and was teaching. This was not an accident. Again, early in Jesus' ministry, and the first thing, one of the the first things he does is goes to the religious authorities. Both the place and the people. Jesus goes, he enters, and he begins to teach. And what does Mark point out for us? The, The next thing he shows us is that Jesus taught as one with recognizable authority. Like his authority was visible. It was recognizable. The people saw it. Again, here's the thing that we've, we've got to catch here. Mark is showing us the authority of Christ, that he's the Son of God, that he has authority when he speaks. So these people, that's his point in showing us, these people were astonished, what? In verse 22, and they were astonished at his teaching for he taught them as one who had what authority so his authority is recognizable and and mark is wanting us to recognize this he draws out this reality for us he's showing us that he goes on to say that he was different than the scribes right What's it say? As one who had authority and not as the scribes. Not as the others who have gone before and spoken in authority. His authority, Jesus' authority, is distinct from. It's above even. That's the implication. He has authority above and He speaks as one with authority above even the scribes. Is the idea. He wants us to see that Christ's authority stands as separate from what was commonly understood as the authority. Mark wants us to see that Jesus is different. That He speaks not like the world does. Not like the scribes do. But from an elevated place of authority. The Scriptures say If you would muse with me for a moment that that they were amazed, that they were astonished. And we don't know what particularly they were astonished by other than the fact that He spoke with authority. But I just wonder what Jesus was doing. And I don't want to speculate here because the Scriptures don't tell us exactly what He was doing. But I wonder if He was Connecting for them what the Old Testament was about. If he was speaking with, he would have been speaking about the Old Testament, right? We know that much. If he was teaching, he was teaching from the Old Testament. I wonder if he was showing them the heart of God in the Old Testament, as opposed to the list of rules apart from a personal God they had become so accustomed to seeing, or if he was showing them the heart of God as opposed to a set of propositions intended to make them right before God, a set of rules for them to abide by to be right with God. I think part of the grand picture here for us, you have God in the flesh now for the first time to these people speaking about God in the past and God in the present. I mean, what could not be astonishing about that? What could not be amazing that that now we're not just hearing the words of God from a man, we're actually hearing the words of God taught by God Himself. His words have recognizable authority. You'll see this as he goes on. God's people... I forget which the reference is, but God's people right here, the voice of the shepherd, and they come and follow Him. You have some of that going on right now. The authority of Christ's words being recognized. Next, His, his authoritative words, if you will, have power. There's a power that's connected to Christ's authority. Again, we're, we're building this picture of what is the gospel. In order to do that, we're going to the gospel of Mark to see who is Jesus, the gospel. Jesus' words have authority. His words have power, verse 27. And they were amazed, and they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey Him. Now what you would have had here is, at least the most relatable point to us, would be like a clinically insane person. Someone that the Spirit is in control of. There's, a, there's this unclean, this, this brokenness in this man's body, in this person's body. Now imagine how the people probably would have felt at this present. I mean, these things were, were uh, even just looking at what he's saying, this man, how uncomfortable this moment would have been. And yet, what does Christ do? Christ responds with compassion and with power. And something powerful happens. His, here's the picture. His very words in this moment have power. He just speaks and something happens. He doesn't have to touch anything. He doesn't have to do a special dance. He doesn't have to mix together a potion. He speaks and something happens. He says these words, be silent, right? Because the the unclean spirit is talking. This brokenness is speaking. And he says, be silent and come out of him. Now notice what happens next in the text. Again, Mark is building for us a picture here. He's painting for us a picture of who the Gospel is about. And he says next in this passage, the response to be silent and come out of Him, Mark describes these words, convulsing and crying out with a loud voice. What's Mark doing? What's Mark trying to get us to see with this description of what's happening. It's intended to communicate the reality of the struggle, the power, the intense grip that this unclean spirit had over this man, the difficulty of the brokenness in this man's life, and all Jesus had to do was say, get out. And the brokenness leaves. His words not only carry authority in the sense that they, uh, we use this word in our house, He's the boss. But they have power to actually move things. To move brokenness. To heal. To command even broken and unclean spirits. It's intended, Mark's intending to communicate to us the intensity of, of the moment and for us to understand the extent or at least to a greater extent the power of Christ's words Jesus spoke and the powerful brokenness of this man's body must obey so you see two things Jesus speaks the words of God with the authority of God. And Jesus speaks and creation submits. So you see his authority and you see, see you and I can have authority by title with no ability to do anything with it. Jesus has both authority and the power to enact it. So let me ask you this kind of question of application. Do you believe that Christ's words have authority and power? To what extent do you believe that Christ's words have authority and power? <clears throat> now let me take your mind, because I, I think I know where many of our minds go to, yes, I believe he can calm the storm, right? Uh, did that picture come into anybody's minds? I believe he can, he can direct the cosmos, and so on and so forth. But let me ask you this question. Does He have the authority and power to command your heart? Does He have the authority and and the power to command your soul? Did you believe that? So when we think about repentance and faith as a church, we believe that, I don't have time to go into this, believe that all sin comes down to wrong belief. All sin comes down to believing something to be true other than what God has said to be true. And then comes the fruit of my unbelief. And so when I am working through the the sin, I I, I must repent and exercise faith. That's where the the faith comes in, right? The the faith to believe what is true instead of what I'm believing that is false. So the question is, do we believe... That other words have more authority and power than Christ's words. Let me give you an example. I'm going to be anxious in this moment because I don't believe Christ's words, and I'm going to use a, a Getty song here, that Christ commands my destiny from life's first cry to final breath so i'm going to i'm going to i'm struggling i'm going to be anxious here because instead of believing these words to be true that he has authority and is powerful over all of my life from my first breath to my final breath well even before that right right but that he he knew me before i was even born he commands all of that Instead of believing that, I'm going to believe for the moment that I'm most powerful or that I have to make things happen this way or that I'm the one that is sovereign over the situation or that I'm the one that can predict the future and that the future is not going to look bright and it's going to look this way that's poor and, and not the way I'm hoping for. And so I'm believing those words instead of believing that He commands my destiny. See, right there, you're not believing that his words have power and authority. At least you're not believing they have more power and authority than yours. And so I'm anxious. I mean, you can apply that to a thousand different things. The question is do I believe and trust in the authority of my words to predict and understand my circumstances? So therefore, I'm anxious or angry or frustrated? Or do I believe in the power and authority of Christ's words to command every aspect of my circumstances? Now how about uh, thinking thinking in terms of gospel in our hearts there, but how about when it comes to someone who doesn't follow Christ? Do we understand that Christ's words... Have power and authority over that person. The person who does not want to follow Christ, the person who seemingly does not follow Christ and rejects Christ, even an enemy of God, do we understand that Christ's words still have power and authority over that person? Do we believe that? So do we go into conversations? hoping to share the gospel because we believe that Christ's words can command the hearts of the person I'm speaking the gospel to. Do you believe that? Just as the unclean spirit here in front of Christ, He says, "Whoa!" He says, get out. Can the power and authority of Christ While speaking to this person who doesn't love Christ, can His words and authority give that person a new heart so that they might believe or that they would believe in that moment? Could His words do that? Do you believe His words can do that? So Christ's words, Jesus' words, the, the gospel Himself They have authority. His words have authority. Let's go to Mark chapter 2 now. The beginning of Mark chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. And they came. They came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Whoa, right? I mean, I mean, Mark, you just took what Jesus did and we just went up like 50 well, maybe 1,000 notches. I don't know. Some big number. Son, your sins are forgiven. The next thing we see is that Jesus has authority over sin and Sickness. Sin and sickness. We saw some of the sickness aspect in the point before. We're going to see it a little bit more here. But he has authority over sin and sickness. <clears throat> Mark 1 tells us that Jesus had been traveling throughout Galilee, healing many people. Now Jesus is back home. And as Jesus is teaching, some friends of a paralytic lower the man through the roof. Now, don't get caught up in the details here, right? Because we all want to stop and be amazed at the cutting of the hole in the roof and how do they just continue to speak, right? I mean, that's fun to think about those things. And Whoa, right? You know, here comes a man from the roof. I mean, typically we think of people ascending through the roof, you know, if you've been to a passion play. But here one comes down from the ceiling. What you need to be captivated by, though, is not the how this contraption actually worked, but by the faith of the four men and the paralytic. They believed, again, back to what is Mark trying to communicate to us, they believed that Jesus had authority over sickness. That he, had, that he was the boss when it came to sickness. They believed that if Jesus wanted to heal this man, that he could. Indeed, they believed that if they could get close enough that Christ would heal him. You see this in other examples where, where the, the, the unclean woman just wanted to reach out and touch his garment, right? If I could just get close enough to him. He has the authority to do something about the situation. And I thought for the moment, can we even fathom the kind of faith of the four men and the paralytic at this point? At least when it comes to physical brokenness, this is a hard thing for us to fathom because we live in such a largely comfortable society where we can go get our own fixes. You might say, well, oh, I believe God can do it. I believe God can heal it. I believe God can... But, but listen, let me, let me take the physical example and go down a notch. To, and let's think more about the soul here, the heart for a moment. Let's say you struggle like with the pride of influence. Like, I can make things go the way I want them to go. If you believe Jesus has authority over sin and sickness, then how come, if you struggle with what I just described, we become so discouraged or darkness besets us, or we become angry... That we can't make things happen the way we want them to happen. What, what, What are we believing most in that moment? We're not believing that Jesus has authority over sin and sickness. We're not believing that He has authority over the circumstances in this situation, and I don't. What we're believing is that I should have authority over this situation and these circumstances and the sovereignty and power to make something happen. Now, the reason I gave that example, you're going to see in a bit, is because Jesus is ultimately more concerned than just the circumstances of the paralytic. So hang with me for just a moment and I'll connect that dot back. They believed Christ had authority over sickness. Now, notice what Christ does first in this particular example. What's he do? he forgives the sins of the paralytic. Now listen, they go to all they cut a hole in the roof. Drop the paralytic down and Jesus your sins are forgiven. Hey Jesus. Dude, there's a reason why he came through the roof on a bed. He can't walk. What's Jesus do? Your sins are forgiven. Now, here's what's interesting. The religious leaders recognize what Jesus has just done. And what he's just done is he has made claim of his deity. Now, now don't get on the religious leaders yet. They, they, I mean, they start acting crazy later, but, but at this point, they're trying to protect the people to some measure. I want to give them at least a little bit of credit. Verse 6-7. through seven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? See, the leaders are discerning what they believe to be false doctrine. What they believe to be something that doesn't represent the Scriptures. i like what got Danny Aiken, He's a uh, president of a, a the, uh, of a seminary. He's a southeastern seminary. He says this, In Jewish thinking, even the Messiah could not forgive sins. God and God alone had the authority and right. Those first century Jews knew exactly what was going on. If he can forgive sins, then Jesus is God. End quote. Jesus was claiming to forgive this man's sins. This was synonymous with claiming to be God himself. So Jesus is claiming to have authority over not simply the body, but over the soul. And the soul's relationship to God. Again, Christ was speaking the words of God in teaching as if He had the authority of God. And now He is speaking with the authority of God to forgive sins against God. Look at verse 10. So the religious leaders recognize this claim to authority. In verse 10, it says, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Right? Wow. Wow. I mean, just. Okay, hang with me for just a second. I want you to see something really crucial that Jesus, with His own words, points out to us. Look at verse 10. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Rise. Brokenness be fixed. Matter of fact, don't just get up. Carry your own bed out of this place. Jesus' power, that's what I want you to see, Jesus' power to heal pointed to his power to forgive. Jesus' power to heal served a greater purpose. It served something bigger, something deeper, something eternal. So that you would know. That I have the power to fix this eternal problem. Be raised. Be healed. You see, the gospel is concerned, yes, with physical sickness. Yes, it is. God will make all these things anew someday. But ultimately, the gospel is concerned with an even greater reality. Spiritual brokenness. Spiritual sickness. The heart. Jesus' primary concern. We see Christ's primary concern here in this moment for His entire ministry. Yes, He's going to heal lots of other people. Yes, He's going to fix lots of brokenness. But Christ's primary concern is man's greatest need, and that is His spiritual healing, His brokenness before the Father. Again, Danny Akin said this, Often, we think we know what our greatest need is. But really, we're only focusing on our circumstances. In reality, the problem you are facing today is not your spouse. It's not your children or parents, your job, boss, or co-workers. Jesus saw everything clearly, far more clearly than we do. He used this teachable moment to make the point concerning our greatest need in this life or the life to come, Jesus forgives the sins of all who come to Him in faith. Jesus makes that point very clear. These are defining moments of Christ's ministry. He has authority. He has power. And the thing He's most concerned about is the sins of His soon-to-be bride with her cleansing her washing her rightness before the father again this is not to say that circumstances your spouse your boss your children your friends are not providing difficult situations i'm sure they are but i want you to think with me for a moment look over the your thought life if you can very quickly if not do it some more later over the past week Have you spent most of the time dealing with these types of situations, giving time and energy and such to these kinds of situations, to your circumstances, if you will? That might be telling you that you disagree with Jesus on this point and that your biggest concern, your biggest need, the greatest issue is to have mastery or have authority or power over your circumstances. But Jesus reminds us that our biggest issue is always a heart that needs to be cleansed before God and needs to be sanctified before God. And Jesus knows, here's what Jesus knows, if He heals the man, if He heals the physical brokenness of this man, but does not deal with the man's sin problem, then this man will still die an eternal death separated from God. Jesus knows that. So I can give you a temporary fix that might make this life a bit more enjoyable, but it will help you zero in the life to come. Jesus sees through the circumstances and sees the man's bigger problem. Now, it gets uncomfortable. I think it gets uncomfortable. When, when you begin to look, whether it's at your life and the lives of others, and you begin to see past the circumstances, right? Begin to call people to see past the circumstances, to see what's going on in their hearts. This begins to get difficult and uncomfortable. Let me ask you some questions. Do you see the problems in your life and those around you as heart Sin problems. Like for example, do you see your child's not obeying you the first time you tell them to do something as a heart issue? Or is it just a behavioral issue? Yes, it is a behavioral issue that's there because there's a heart issue there. Do you see your unwillingness to go give appropriate discipline as a heart issue and not just a convenience issue? How about this, I'm thinking any any age of child here, but do you you see your child's lack of love and commitment to the body of Christ as a heart issue? Whether they're redeemed or not, particularly if they're not redeemed, or we just think of it as an age thing, a, a maturity thing only. Or how about this, your husband's lack of leadership in the home. Do you see that? Do you see beyond the circumstances of what he is failing to do and seeing that there is a heart behind it that needs to be dealt with? That there's a sinful heart behind it. That's leading to a lack of appropriate leadership in the home. Or is it just simply a pragmatic thing that needs to be fixed? Oh, he just needs some better skills. He needs to be a better communicator. He just needs to reset some priorities, you know, so on and so forth. Those things might be true. But the problem is, is there's something deeper behind it. That's just uh, the paralysis in his leadership is not just going to be simply fixed by telling him to get up and walk. Or how about your lack of studying the Scripture? Do we see that as a heart issue? Or we just claim it as a time issue? I just don't have time. Or, or whatever. Do you see the lack of submission in whatever context that you're in, man or woman, as a sin problem and not a pragmatic leadership problem? All right, The list can go on and on and on and on and on. But the issue is, do we see behind the circumstances? Do you give priority to the same priority as Jesus? And do you love others around you enough to deal with, to look for with graciousness, right, and mercy, but to look beyond the circumstances in people's lives and go, I wonder how their heart is doing. I wonder what they're believing that's leading to such despair. How can I pray for them and help them in that? The last thing before we move to the next passage, I I want you to see, I don't want you to miss something very important here. (coughs) That Jesus indeed has the power and authority to deal with your biggest issue. He doesn't have just the insight to point it out. He actually has the power and authority to do something about it. Right? And, and we know that that's where the story is leading to, right? Because ultimately, he's going to do something about it. But don't miss it. Here in Mark 2, he has the power and authority to do something about it he says to the man your sin son they are forgiven he loves the paralytic and so he doesn't just deal with his paralysis he deals with his heart with his sin see the gospel has authority over sickness and ultimately our sin So let me ask you this question. Do you believe that Jesus is going to deal with your heart today? He's going to deal with your heart problem tomorrow. Do you believe that He is going to use your paralysis to persevere you? Do you understand He's going to use your circumstances to dig into the heart problem behind the circumstances? That He's going to use the brokenness of your life to bring healing to your soul, that he has the power to do that, and that's what He does in His people. Do you believe that God is doing that right now? Can you see it? Maybe you need others to help you help you see it. I was in a meeting this past week and someone was describing the past year and felt like it had plateaued and, and I'm like, hey whoa. but the fact that you recognize that, the fact that you recognize that that something needs to change is a work of god that he cares more about than just your circumstances he cares about where your heart's at and he is helping you see this right now because he loves you i put this in my notes can you write it down stamp it on your forehead get a tattoo i don't care So that when tomorrow hits you, you will remember that Jesus has the power and authority and desire to deal with our biggest needs. To be right before His Father. Let's go to Mark chapter 1 verse 16 through 18. Mark chapter 1, 16 through 18. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And we don't have time, but if you go on and read... Next part of the story, he does the same thing, a couple other men, and so on and so forth. The thing I want you to see is that Jesus' authority calls us to follow him. His authority calls us to follow him. So, at this passage in Mark, he calls four fishermen to be his students, to, to follow him. Now, all of them were willing to leave everything and immediately follow Jesus Christ. Here it's Jesus' authority that commands these guys to follow. I mean, think about, it. this was, in many ways, their livelihood, their physical needs, but now we don't know if they came back and, and did some work and, and those kind of, we don't know the details, but what we know Mark is pointing out, again, what is the picture he's painting for us? And Jesus says, "Follow me." And they immediately left their nets and followed. So not just did he command the evil spirit to come out or to forgive sins or to fix the paralysis of this man's body, but to say, you, broken heart, sinful man, woman, Follow me. And they follow him. Now, what does Jesus do though? It's it's so interesting. Jesus, notice what he says: follow me, and I will do what? I will make you fishers of men. What is Jesus doing? Jesus affirms their physical reality, right? That they're fishermen. That there's, there's a, a fineness to this. There's even a goodness to this. This is, this is alright. He's not making a, a moral declaration about their <clears throat> career choice. But he says, I'm going to take the toil of your hands. I'm going to take the physical reality that you know, and I'm going to lead you to something more. I'm going to make you men who cast your nets to reach those whom I'm going to save. I will make you fisher of men. Jesus calls them out of their temporal existence into an eternal task. Again, don't miss it. Jesus' authority brings these guys to follow Him they immediately get up and follow he says and then he says i will make did you hear that jesus does the doing we do the following the depending the chasing after but he's the one that does the making he calls he draws we depend we follow we respond he makes he transforms his authority calls us to follow him Listen, do you believe that Jesus is still calling people today? Do you believe He is still calling people today? Jesus' authority calls his people to follow him. It's not a call to say a simple prayer or join a church. It's not a call to just go follow a bunch of rules or a call to do whatever you want so long as it's morally acceptable. It's not a call to simply mentally agree with a set of propositions. His authority demands and calls us to follow him, to walk in his footsteps. To take those footsteps for the same reasons even that he takes those footsteps. To go where he goes. To do what he does. To love what he loves and desire what he desires. And most of all, to love him supremely in all of it. His words have the authority to call us to follow him. Do you, do you believe this? Do, that he is making you, even today, into a disciple of his? Do you trust that? Do you see evidence of that? Or is life just going by? Is life just going by and you just hang a couple spiritual trinkets on it every once in a while? Are you following him? Do you believe that He's still calling people out of darkness? Your neighbor, your coworker? I've got to watch, and a number of you have gotten to be a part of this as well, someone in our midst over the past year and a half that God has called out of darkness into life. He's still calling people. We're going to baptize this person, Lord willing, in the next month. Lastly, I want you to notice the faith of these men. They stepped out. They followed him without hesitation. Mark even uses the descriptor immediately, right? Immediately. Let me quote someone for you. What is authentic faith? The cultivation of an optimistic outlook on life with a kind of spirituality attached to it? Is that faith? Just a optimistic outlook on life with some spiritual trinkets to it. He goes on, a holy hoping for the best. Is that how you think of faith? Authentic faith is the confident assurance in events not yet seen. Faith is not a call to believe in things when common sense tells you not to. Faith is not a mindless stab in the dark. It's a word that speaks of reasoned, careful, deliberate, intentional thought. Thought upon what is the question? God and His promises. This is what faith is, my friends. Positive certainty expressed in action. Authentic faith is not merely believing in God, it is believing God. We all struggle with faith. This is where we all struggle. Oh, we have faith. This is a positive certainty expressed in action. The struggle though is that faith in our power is often the time oftentimes the place where it rests in our power to make things happen the way we want them to, our faith in our ability to to arrange our circumstances so that we might experience goodness and peace, our faith in our ability to control life around us. Even in depression, listen to me, even in depression, you are acting on the faith that your perception or your prophesying about reality is without flaw. What's the problem? We believe in these promises more than we do what God has promised. In that moment of your darkest moment going, I, life is just terrible. it's it's based on resting and faith in in my own assessment of life, faith in my own promises of what I think and what my heart is telling me will happen tomorrow and what's going to happen today and what rests for me instead of resting in what God has said. Faith in His promises, faith in His commands, faith in His sovereignty and faith in His love for you. We tend to chase after these other promises, and when we do so, we must ask God to give us the faith to believe Him more than anything else, even more than ourselves, right? Because there's this war in ourselves, right? Paul talks about the flesh raging war with the soul, and it's back and forth, and I don't do what I want to do, and I do what I don't want to do, and there's there's this battle going on that Ask God to give us the faith to believe Him more than we believe ourselves. The flesh that wages war inside of us. And if we believe His promises, then we'll repent for believing the wrong promises. Because we're saying these promises are more assured than God's promises. These promises are more likely to happen than God's promises. Father, I'm sorry for that. Give me the faith to believe Your promises promises, and if we delight, trust, enjoy His promises, then the promises of the flesh will slowly fade away. Listen, the gospel is so much more than just a simple set of statements that we must agree with to be a Christian. It certainly includes those truths like Jesus living the righteous life that we could not live, Dying the death and paying the price for our sins, satisfying the wrath of God for us. And then raising again from the dead on the third day and being exalted to the throne at the right hand of the Father. And that if we would believe in Him, that's the key, right? Believe in Him, we would be saved not just believe a set of facts but believe in the one who died for us you see the gospel is a person a person whose words have authority whose words have power whose words heal brokenness sickness and ultimately our greatest need before the father and that is our sins to be forgiven that we might be made right with him and a person whose words calls out call out followers and transforms them as they walk with Him. Let me pray for us this morning. Father God, thank You for Your Word this morning. Father, thank You for the the picture You've given us in Mark, that Your Son's words have authority, that they have power, power to command our brokenness, power to command our circumstances, but more importantly, Father, power to command our very hearts. Power to command, the, to, to heal the brokenness of our sinfulness, Father. To, to the power to forgive our sins, to pay the price for our sins, Father, that You have sent Him to rescue us. Father, I pray that as we we go forward, as we worship you in these next few moments, Father, may, may our hearts be reminded of the promise of salvation through your Son, Jesus. May we, by your grace, forsake the promises that we have made to ourselves or the world makes to us that we'd forsake them and grab a hold of what you have clearly promised your people. Father, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you please stand?